Hello everybody and welcome back to the test screening. My name is Chloe. And my name is Billy. And we are here. It's way too early in the morning. This is morning <laughs> brain territory. Stakes will be made. Morning everybody in advance. Um, so that we can get all of these great reviews in. We're going to start off with our suggestions this week because we got so many, you guys. We got so many. I was, <laughs> I was blown away by how many responses we had on TikTok and on Instagram. Um, so I'm just going to read a few of them out. And uh, Billy, you can kind of, you know, just, just tell me if you agree that the score is banging. Because we asked for bangers only. The score isn't a banger. So you need to tell us straight away. We can knock it off the list. It's an essential requirement. So, um, some of the ones that we had was uh, Cal from uh, our uni course gave us City of God. I, th- I think it's a banger. I think the it's been a long time since I've seen City of Gods, but I seem to remember the very kind of aggressive and, and bustling and frenetic sort of rhythm of those favelas and, you know, that very crime-ridden, hectic lifestyle that the children live in the in the slums in Rio is reflected a lot in the very sort of fast-paced Brazilian music that's used in the score for that film, which I think, from my memory, reflect reflects and sinks in very tightly with the with the super choppy and fast and balletic rhythm of the edit. So yes, I I, w- I would say banger on that one. Next one that he gave us was Atlanta. Can can always count on Carl for some left field picks. I love it. I love Atlanta. No, I'm like I'm saying straight away that's not even left field. Atlanta is just full of bangers. I think the thing I love about Atlanta's Atlanta's music is just I mean obviously there's a I mean it's it's about so many different things that show in you know African American culture and the American dream um you know a lot a lot of very pertinent social issues in America but um also you know, hip hop culture and the new versus the old rap music and how the scene has changed, particularly Atlanta in Atlanta, which is such a hotbed for like the, the Southern trap scene and everything like that. You know, that those strands of, of that style of music. And I just love the way it contrasts, you know, the new with the old uh, in that show. There's some great, there's a flashback episode where it goes back to their school days and it immediately, I mean, the film stock and the sort of the grade uh, is different on that episode sort of reflect that change in time period. And they immediately place you in, I think it's the 80s and the 90s and probably the early 90s with um, Passing Me By by The Far Side, which just has this instantly recognisable like lumbering drum beat and this really weird ethereal kind of chirping synthesizer that's just so cool. And one of my, probably my favourite use of of a recognised hip-hop song in Atlanta is there's, I think it's the last scene of the first season where, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who's not seen Atlanta, but there's kind of, there's a implication throughout season one that Donald Glover's character, Earn, is, I mean, it's not quite an implication, it's it's quite clear he's struggling to... Uh, earn money and financially sustain himself and his partner and uh, their daughter and pay pay child support and but it's not revealed to us the full extent of how much he's struggling financially and then there's a really great montage with sort of cutting with some other characters that kind of slowly reveals just the, the sort of state of disrepair his life's got in, gotten into and um it's soundtracks by elevators by outcast 
which is a song that's kind of all about sort of hustling and finding your way through um, sort of difficult and tumultuous periods in both the music industry and sort of hood life. And it's got these really like airy, atmospheric synthesizers that kind of fade in and out to the beat. They almost sound like kind of escalators and the, the lights and sound effects on elevators as they're sort of like slipping past each other. It's like one of the most unique beats in a rap song I think I've ever heard. And um, it's like iconic and one of the most iconic outcast songs. And yeah, it's just a great use of music in that episode. I feel like you're not going to want to go into that much detail with this next one. And I find it really funny because this one was suggested to us by Guy, who he's a sound guy. You know, he's his whole thing is like music and sound design. Um, he recommended Cars. Did he? <laughs> yes. I love, I love that from. I love that from Guy. That's such a good pick. I mean, you say that, I have to say, Life as a Highway by Rascal Flatts. Absolute okay. cornerstone of my childhood. I had that song on my first iPod shuffle. Um, just country, country rock slapper that so brilliantly... Who would have soundtracks the, the whole positive and... Um, celebratory and competitive vibe of that film and who would have thought they could have got a country band like that to make a song for one of the like one of the most C-tier Pixar films I mean I, I, I do have a soft spot for Cars but it's not one of the more popular ones and the fact that they pulled in those artists for that song is is kind of a miracle Can you say it yes okay I agree certified banger um, we'll, we'll allow it um, some other suggestions were on the on the theme of cars, Baby Driver, which I totally agree with. I think the soundtrack for that film is fantastic. We also had Iron Man. Iron Man, I'm not so sure of. Um, that was a TikTok one. I find a lot of the Marvel films are very samey. But are, are there some bangers in Iron Man? I actually can't remember. Uh, there's a kind of there's a cool use of Back in Black um, by ACDC at the start. It was it was actually the movie that intro- the movie that introduced me to that song. And, of course, there's a very cool, very badass, kind of apt use of Iron Man by Black Sabbath, um, one of the best heavy metal songs ever written. Over the end credits, kind of, it, it sort of kicks in the riff as he makes the announcement at the end of the film, oh, no, yeah, I am Iron Man, and then all the reporters scramble, and then the main <laughs> riff comes in, it's like, okay, that's really cool. <laughs> but apart from that, I don't okay, think it's okay. A ton, I remember. All right, all right. I'll give I'll give them that then. Um, we also had uh, Luna, one of my mates, gave us Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which I've not seen. I don't know if you've seen that one. Yeah, it's one of the best Coen Brothers songs. That one, that soundtrack album won a Grammy for Album of the Year. So yeah. that's how, yeah, it's just all this bluegrass and like kind of old folk and country music from like the, I think the 20s and 30s is the time period. And it's that not not that I dislike that style of music at all because I don't, but it's it's not one I particularly gravitate towards normally in my regular listening rotation. But it just fits the the kind of the, the very quirky, dusty vibe of that film so well. And there's a great there's a bit where they record. I think they have to get money from somebody, so they do them a favor by recording an old bluegrass classic in their studio. And George Clooney is essentially singing bluegrass. I mean, I'm not sure if it's actually his vocals, but he's doing these really amped sort of exaggerated lip syncing obviously in his <laughs> performance where the character is actually singing and it's just really funny watching him go wee <laughs> just like 
did all these <laughs> old old w- Southern American just like bluegrass vocal mannerisms, and then the other two, John Turturro and the other actor, his name escapes me, but um, they sort of like come in from the the side of the frame every now and then, and then disappear, and then come back in and just harmonise with him. It's it's yeah, it's a it's a great soundtrack, and the fact and the fact they had such crossover and mainstream appeal is reflected in the fact that it did so well at, at the Grammys. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for that one, Luna. I feel like we'll have to. I'll have to have a watch of that now, and and uh, so I can fully appreciate the soundtrack. We also had two thousand and one: A Space Odyssey, which is iconic, absolutely yeah, iconic. Donny Darko, we had as well. Um, I've not. Okay, the bit of an admission. I've not seen Donny Darko. It's um. It's a trip. It's a. No, I just. I, I feel like it came like. It was popular, and I just wasn't that kind of child when I when it was popular. I was like, "This is not going <laughs> to appeal to me in the way that it might appeal to me now." It looks really edgy; like it looks a bit, um, you know, like every every frame that I've seen, is a little bit like an early pop punk album. It's like if Fall Out Boy made a film. That's kind of what I imagine would happen. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, I I know what you mean. I actually, I'd be interested to watch it again now because it is quite um it has a somewhat kind of gothic tone to it which i think is kind of is really cool in how they you know wrap up a really dark and quite sinister sinister like apocalyptically tinged sci-fi story in amongst a coming of age drama and i'd be interested to see if that, that sort of early 2000s edge kind of holds up now but um but I think that from a soundtrack perspective, it's certainly worth mentioning. It has a really iconic use of. There was a very sort of mellow, sort of quietly dramatic, like piano-driven cover of "Mad World" by Tears of Fears that a guy called Gary Jules did, and that version of "Mad World" plays over um, a sort of um, climactic montage in the film where the film. Where Donnie Duck is sort of lays bare the sort of the, the secrets and the various sort of motivations that have that have gone into sort of the, the time traveling you know rabbit that stalks Donnie and the various different characters and how their lives and the, the time travel aspects of the narrative kind of all link together and it's this really like beautifully melancholic um, just take on sci-fi one one of the most um, powerful of the elk that I can certainly think of so for that and you will have definitely heard that version of the song if you listen to it again so um and it's a, it's I think it's almost made that version of the song more iconic than the original Tears for Fears version it's certainly the one I, I think remember. I have seen I think I have heard it um I must have done because I can I can remember a version that isn't the Tears for Fears version so I'm guessing it's that one because it must have just become so iconic or like synonymous with the film yeah it's amazing how music can do that. Sometimes you know, when we talk about Blues Brothers um, a little bit later, like we're going to go into some of these songs that were recorded by the Blues Brothers. They're not Blues Brothers originals, but they, you know, kind of did surpass a lot of the originals in popularity, which, you know, you could say was a shame. Um, or, you know, like what did that version do for the song? Did it make it more popular? Um, but we'll go into that in a, in a little bit. Um, we also had, I love this film, this is one of my favourites, Juno. I was very close to suggesting that we do Juno. Uh, that's one of my my absolute favourites. Uh, Elliot Page is, I just, I went for an Elliot Page, like, moment when I just watched anything he was in. <laughs> I literally, 
and uh, yeah, I've got very fond memories. And I'd, I would also add into that Perks of Being a Wallflower, who, um, you know, I think had the same director as the guy who wrote and directed Perks of Being a Wallflower. And the soundtrack in Perks of Being a Wallflower, I would also argue, is quite iconic. There's some real bangers in that one. Yeah. That, um, um, we- that was the film that introduced me to David Bowie's Heroes. So I'll always, oh my god! Um, yeah, and it's an amazing film as well. So I will always hold a soft spot in my heart for the purpose of being a wallflower. And um, there's and there's that sort of great central plot device of there being like the, the mixtape and the songs they put on it, and then the tunnel song. And when you actually sit back and sort of analyze it from a plot perspective, you go, "Wait, how did these kids hear David Bowie on the radio and not realize it was him?" Yeah, no, I was, yeah, I was thinking that. It's like they're like, "Who is this? What is this song?" And you're like, "Oh, like, dude, <laughs> it's David it's Bowie. Like, it's this not one of this his... isn't the eighties. <laughs> yeah, but then again, you know, you say that. I don't. I think sometimes people take for granted the fact that David Bowie wasn't quite as you know rapturously successful in the states as I think he was in the UK. So I think you know, I don't think it's as not credible as people sometimes say it is that perhaps they wouldn't have necessarily known immediately what Heroes was. Maybe that they would have... I think the bit I find slightly less credible is how difficult they have finding the song afterwards, but um, <laughs> but it's such a... It, it so wonderfully punctuates that emotional moment they have in the in Driving in the Tunnel together that um, that I can it's kind of forgive it. Pre-Spotify days. Pre-Shazam days. Pre-Shazam days. <laughs> uh, we also had uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, which oh yeah, hell yeah, like that. I mean, What's I'm not that? a massive Pirates of the Caribbean fan of the film, but no one can deny the soundtrack, the score, banger, banger. The swashbuckling theme. I mean, just instantly recognisable. Um, Into the Spider Verse. We also had um, which that's like I, I'd say that the, some of the music in that soundtrack is like a really good example of that's going to become like modern classic a lot of them got in my head <laughs> they, like yeah, it's, yeah. it's a good album the into the spider-verse album like it's got lots of like post malign and um you know some really good hip-hop rap artists on that it's yeah it's it's worth a look if you haven't listened to the spider-verse soundtrack i would recommend it Start a Riot by Duckwork is like a grimy trap banger, right? I love that it actually made it into a spot into an animated cel-shaded Spider-Man film, especially with like another another one like Sunflower on it. Oh yeah, Sunflower. Sunflower's Sunflower's a tune. Sunflower is a tune. Uh, oh, uh, the last one we also had uh, a recommendation from My Little Pony, um, which I'm I'm not even going to let you reply. Banger. Um, it is banger. And I can't take that away from anybody. You know? You're not, not going to let me usurp. That oh, I'm not going to let you ruin pick. this. For this person, <laughs> you know, if a little pony, you know what? Like we don't give it enough credit um, <laughs> to the people who work on those films. You know, especially recently, I feel like they do put a lot of effort into the like music. So hey, if that's your thing, you go do you. Love my little pony. Well, I don't love Any- my little pony. I need no. to go and actually like dig out the soundtrack now and see if I'm if I'm missing a trick here. <laughs> you might be. I, can't, I feel like you're gonna like message me later and be like, Chloe, what the hell were you on about? <laughs> what are you doing to my ears? 
<laughs> but thank you everyone for all of those suggestions. I'm going to talk a little bit about, so we there are a couple that we kind of singled out or ones that we wanted to talk about. One of those was Charlie recommended The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. And essentially, we have realised that we do not have time this week to, to do all of them. So we're going we're gonna to basically pace this, uh, this round. We're going to pace this round of suggestions so that we can do Secret Life of Walter Mitty next week. So that is coming, Charlie, because I really want to see it. It's been on my list for a long time. Um, but the ones that we're going to focus on today are The King and Blues Brothers. So we'll start with The, the King. Um, who was this recommended to you by? And yeah, tell us about it. Tell us what the score does for the film. So this was recommended to me by my cousin, Matt. Thank you, for, Matt, very much for the suggestion. You also made a great suggestion on the on the underrated films um, call out, which I'm sure we'll do at some point. But uh, And also, actually, a friend, uh, a colleague of mine at work, Lance, he, he mentioned The King to me and how he thought it was quite an, an underrated film. Um, epic war film and that he thought the score was particularly um impactful and how he he'd looked at some of the music for inspiration when he was trying to pick out piece of music for um for a pre-edit for the the wildlife documentary we're, we're working on at the moment and so it's a 2019 epic uh, historical war film it's based on several plays from william shakespeare's henry as and it includes uh, an ensemble cast, kind of led by Timothy Chalamet. He's uh, he plays the Prince of Wales and later King Henry V of England, alongside Lily Rose Depp, Thomas and Mackenzie, uh, Sean Harris, Joel Edgerton, Robert Pattinson, and Ben Mendelsohn. Robert Pattinson is instantly c- delivering the one of the strangest French accents I've ever heard on screen in cinema history. But um, I thought it was a really good film and quite underrated. I, what I liked about it was particularly with notes to the score as well, is that for, uh, for for what I've just described as an epic war film, it's very kind of dialogue-driven. And that's not to say there isn't, you know, intense, epic, you know, very visceral and you know, scrungy battle sequences in it, but the film does a lot to drill into the the sort of emotional ramifications of combat in the medieval time period. And... How, and sort of demystifying sort of the the allure of battle and how there are you know tremendously weighty decisions that go into those sort of political and militaristic maneuvers that uh, that have a tremendous effect and ramifications on the the lives of regular people and entire communities. Of course, that he's taking you know the soldiers from into into battle. And the score is composed by Nicholas Britell who is an absolute god of modern cinematic scores. He composes the music for Succession, which has an incredible main theme, and also the music for Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk, which are just stunning and, and poetic and very emotive too. Uh, I I was kind of surprised when I watched The King because the, the score in it wasn't particularly prominent. It wasn't like super pounding in the mix or anything. But what I really thought it brought to it was this really strong sense of sort of you know, aching deep melancholy that comes with Timothy Chalamet's you know Henry V's decisions that they do lose a lot of lives and you know there's sort of moments where you get these kind of deeply rumbling or sort of kind of weeping string sections that punctuate moments where he sort of sees the devastation that some sometimes his 
piss poor decisions or even just a, nece- a necessary battle sort of wreaked havoc on his on his army and several people's lives. And I, given the you know themes and orchestral scores in historical epics can be you know pushed so far to the forefront of of the mix in terms of like driving the grandiosity of the story. What I really appreciated about this was how kind of restrained it it was and how it it really didn't do too much. It did exactly what was required and then sort of either dipped out in the mix or just didn't you know wasn't super loud. So I appreciate the the restraint it had in it, and also how it it punctuated those those emotional points too, and sort of very subtly sort of built in that that melancholic mood that it sort of takes to um, medieval historical war. I should give special mo- mention to a moment where uh, the the army initially land in France, and it it's punctuated these kind of these very cool deep blues as they sort of land on the the stone beach. And it's soundtracked by these sort of choral, very kind of haunting choral vocals, which is interesting to kind of hear in a score, in a score for a film like this as well. But it kind of again puts that eerie and point across in a very humanistic way because we're hearing, you know, voice used as instrument here. You know, the the, the melancholy of the moment is being conveyed through, you know, the voices of people that almost kind of sound you know, ethereal and unearthly as though they're coming from sort of maybe the afterlife or something like that. So it kind of like clues you into the sort of the death and the loss that will and weariness that will come later. Yeah, I thought the music was really effective in this. Yeah, I, I've, I've heard, I have heard all about Robert Patterson's French accent um, in in great detail by many a people. So <laughs> does does that count as part of the score, do you think? You know, just the the general ambiance of whatever Robert Patterson was doing. I guess, I guess you could say there is a a certain musicality to the utter travesty he brings to speaking English in a French accent. And there's a there's a great line where he says, um, where Timothy Chalamet Henry starts tr- trying to talk to him, um, like a battle negotiation in French. And then I'm not going to try and imitate the accent because I'll just butcher it no please do quite funny. <laughs> please he go, no I'm not going to try um, he just he goes um, <laughs> no let's let's no speak speak in English and he says it very mockingly he's like because it's so so ugly and I'm just like oh, you've said speaking in English is ugly when that monstrosity is spewing forth from your mouth <laughs> so no, that, that is Beautiful. that is quite amusing it it does add a certain nails on a chalkboard characteristic <laughs> to the soundtrack. I guess you could, I guess you could say, glorious. Um, moving on then. So this is our second suggestion that we're going to go into, and I'm really excited to talk about this. So this was recommended by my friend Evelyn. It was Blues Brothers. I've never seen Blues Brothers. This is my first time watching it, and. Holy moly, what the hell did I just witness? I I was expecting it to be like a bit strange. I wasn't expecting it to be that strange. It is a lot. It is it's it's glorious as much as it is mad. It's just mad. <laughs> and I can't be mad at it because it is actually very entertaining. Um 
So Blues Brothers is about two brothers, as you might have guessed. Um, they come from a, is it like an orphanage or a school? But they're, they're essentially, one of them gets out of jail. They go back to this um, to this orphanage that's run by a, a nun who they call the Penguin, which just instantly funny. And um, they discover that the orphanage is low on funds. So in order to help them get the money back, they are going to put the band back together um, <laughs> and try and raise the money honestly. Um, so in order to get the band back together, they basically go on a bit of a road trip around Chicago, uh, of which there are so many high-profile cameos of, you know, soul and blues singers. They're like Aretha Franklin in this movie. Yeah, how did how did they get Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, and James Brown, and uh, don't know how did other, they pull it off in this in the same film? It's crazy. I'm like, well, how did I not know that so many of these guys were in in this film? Um, but essentially, it's a it's a musical caper of which Carrie Fisher was uh, Dan Aykroyd's girlfriend at the time. Um, also plays like some like homicidal <laughs> um, rocket launcher pairing <laughs> like assassin. It's all it's nuts, so nuts. Um, yeah, but there, there's musical sequences. It's a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. Um, both uh, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. They were SNL alums at the time. Um, did you know that this film, I was looking this up afterwards because I couldn't believe the amount of destruction that this film kind of imposes upon all of its sets, pieces and everything. Like, ev- literally everything blows up at some point or, you know, gets destroyed. And apparently this film went 10 million over budget. <laughs> that, that does not surprise me at all, but that's still obscene. <laughs> And I think uh, apparently most of it went on cocaine, which I can fully believe. <laughs> that's, that's, you have to be hocked up on cocaine during some of those mole destruction scenes, some of those car chases, and also fueling oh, John Belushi's yeah. habit. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's the sad thing about it, I guess. But the, like, my God, is, is a coke-fueled absolute fever dream but i had a really good time with it i I really enjoyed it Um, a lot of the music is fantastic it's mostly covers of really well-known blues r&b a bit of pop classics um, by some of them by some of the artists that are scattered throughout the film um the blues brothers in themselves kind of became they released albums of this stuff and they became really, really popular. Which is a little bit strange. So, I mean, again, I was looking into this because it was, uh, there was something about it that didn't quite sit right with me. Is um, the kind of racial equalities in the film. I kind of had a little look into it. And it's so strange how times have changed. Because when Blues Brothers was originally ready for release... Executives said that it wouldn't play in white neighbourhoods. Basically, some of them refused to even put it in cinemas in white neighbourhoods because they said it was a, a black film and, and only black people would want to see a film where they have so many old black stars. 
is insane to me. Like Aretha, Fra- like Aretha is Aretha. in this film when they were like, oh no, like not, you know, people aren't going to want to watch it. And by today's standards, I think that narrative has, has flipped because at the end of the day, it's essentially about two white guys who feel like they're going to go and save blues and the black characters are kind of relegated to side characters within their own musical culture hasn't it hasn't quite aged well in that sense but then i was also thinking about and i'm like we're still kind of doing this with a lot like the kind of appropriation of the history of music or traditionally music from black communities um la la land i mean i have a i'm not a massive la la land fan but you have so ryan gosling who's going to be the savior of jazz and you're like please could we not Um, and also we had Whiplash as well, which is, you know, there's not, I don't think there is a black character in, in Whiplash. Um, no. You know, the, di- the diversity in these discussions has kind of become a bit skewed. And I'm not saying that, like, obviously, people from any background can enjoy any kind of music. That's not what I'm trying to say. I just think it becomes quite blatant appropriation when you have the two main characters who are, you know, being being hailed as the best of or the saviors of and although they are paying tribute to a lot of the people that they're covering unfortunately they kind of ended up taking over some of their music sales as well like when they released the album afterwards sometimes the blues brothers version gained more popularity than the original artists themselves so hey i love the film I do love the film. I I really, really enjoyed it. And I think there is something to be said for the way that at least you do have that representation there. Like you do have these massive names in soul and and um and soul and jazz music in the film. At least they are present. Um I think if it was gonna be made today, you'd want them to take on a more like a more starring role and not just be you know, cameos along the way you get what i mean i'd want them to be part of the story and 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 part of you know the reason behind these characters having such a love for this music and and you'd want them to kind of take more of a starring role with within the film at least they're there which is something that can't be said for a lot of films that kind of are about this subject more recent films that are about this subject you know have less representation than this so credit where credit's due could be better. <laughs> favorite favorite musical moment from it? Favorite song? Favorite performance sequence? Church oh. scene is fucking good. Church uh, <laughs> <laughs> scene is wild. James Brown just <laughs> scre- screaming at the old landmark while people are just somersaulting fifty feet in the air. I'm just like, who did this? Who came up with this? Honestly, um, who came up with this as a genius. Also, I mean, you know, I love Aretha Franklin and I think her moment I actually really enjoyed as well. Um, you know, when she's kind of like telling her husband not to not to just, you know, up and leave her for these two random men that have walked into her diner. <laughs> I, I do just think that, that the attitude and the fact that she's like dancing, like she's being so annoyed, but like dancing so... Interly, there's something just really funny about that. 
Um, I, f- I feel like a lot of them were in on the joke, which makes it yeah. so good to watch. You can see like the sparkle in the eyes of um, you know pretty much every character that turns up in this, where they're kind of like, "This is mental," but I'm all here for it. Are you? Have you got? Have you got a favorite? Oh, I I, I love the um, I love the opening credits where you just get those. Those horn sections sort of bust in at the start of um, She Caught the Katie and how they sort of cut between their two faces. And then he just transitions into that really like smooth, um, low down bluesy groove that, as they're like driving across the city to go back to the orphanage. I just, I just, it's such a great kickoff to the <laughs> film. It just, it's, it's like perfect, perfect opening credits music. It is, it is good. That opening scene. It is. It is pretty iconic. Um, I would say when he like had the the used condom in the. Oh yeah. I was like, what kind of film is this gonna be? (laughs) Luckily, didn't continue on in that vein. But I was like, why the fuck is that? (laughs) Absolutely grim. Anyway, uh, we've got to move on. Um, otherwise, we're going to end up talking about Blues Brothers for the, the whole episode. But thank you, Evelyn, for uh, suggesting that I had a great time watching it. And I'm going to enjoy listening to a lot of the music. So, we're going to talk about Dead Ringers. And this isn't the original Dead Ringers. This is a TV show adaptation of the original film starring Rachel Wise. We spoke about it a few episodes ago, I believe when it was when it was first coming out so if you like binged this yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> rapidly <laughs> um how, how was it how did you do so um one of the things when you kind of naturally wonder when the announcement of a reimagining of a very kind of celebrated source material that originated as a film comes out is will it kind of justify its existence and manage to differentiate itself in terms of it's narrative slant, overall filmmaking feel, will it bring sort of new, breathe new life into the material? And that would be especially tough when you're working in the shadow of a director that's as revered and with as distinct a style of like atmospheric cruelty as David Cronenberg. And I was, I was very intrigued to see what new approach could be brought to this uniquely disquieting story. I think we spoke about that and how I thought, you know, there was definitely ter- territory, new territory be mine to be mined from this story. And um, after having seen the series in its entirety, I have to say that I'm somewhat torn on the final project, though I do think there's much to appreciate here. So for anyone who doesn't know, Dead Ringers was a 1988 film from David Cronenberg. Uh, the twins were played by Jeremy Irons, and here they're played by, as you say, Rachel Weisz. Um, two twin gynecologists, uh, the Mantle twins, one named Beverly and one named Elliot. They are geniuses in their field they are sort of trailblazers in in the world of well in 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 the new version of female medicine and and gynecology and they're looking to kind of expand their reach and uh sort of just advance developments in the world of you know appropriate healthcare and medical care for for women whereas it's a lot more about toxic masculinity and uh playing god in the original film and even though they are geniuses they have a very twisted and toxic codependent relationship Elliot is a lot more outwardly volatile and brash and Beverly is a lot more kind of insecure and you know insular and 
somewhat isolated and because they're ba- they're basically identical they have this very strange thing they do where they sort of swap in each other in and out of their both their jobs and their love lives both as a way of you know helping the one who's not particularly adept at forming relationships you know achieve romantic and sexual pleasure and also combat fatigue when they're doing their work and it kind of leaves leads to some very twisted scenarios and uh, given you know the, the the recent developments with you know the crisis really with female medical care in the states i i was kind of very interested to see how this was going to put a new slant on the material so to start with the good in terms of its style this new version of dead ring is it feels vastly different from the original film the original has this very kind of un- unnerving sterility this icy sort of removed inertia and this really quietly and uncomfortably like twisted masculinity this new version is is sharper it's more direct it's also kind of a lot more zooms in on the characters it's more intimate it's it's visceral in how it pushes in on the the sisters dark attacks on each other and more outwardly toxic markers of their relationship and this is also greatly aided by like a fire cracker dual performance from Rachel Weisz that does a lot to make a far greater distinction between the sisters personalities i mean all great respect to the, the amazing jeremy irons and his his performance in the original but it in that film it does kind of you feel as though they do bleed into each other somewhat and there's a struggle to sometimes differentiate between them which is part of the point to an extent but i feel like this new version of dead rings greatly benefits from there being much more pronounced differences in the in the sisters also you know like i said the base level idea of taking the story and updating it to modern times and switching the gender of the siblings to female is frankly genius considering the situation we're in currently with reproductive rights the original film puts a lot more theme on the the idea of you know they of like gynecology as this like really not sort of twisted and way of sort of you know per- exuding perverse control on you know the female anatomy. They they come up with these really twisted gynecological gynecological tools, and here we see more. Um, we see two trailblazing female medical professionals in this kind of self-destructing crisis um, between greatly expanding the safe healthcare for women, but financial heavyweights and investors, you know, offering and beckoning money, and then the desire to commodify that industry and use the sisters' influence and medical proficiency to aid this. And the way that then bleeds into the sister's relationship and conflict with, you know, Elliot's brazen sexuality and, and power-hungry attitudes and, you know, driving a lot of this financial uh, steering with um, Beverly's more earnest desires for improving medical care for women and her maternal feelings, you know, that sort of different dynamic here is fascinating. I, partic- I, found, I find Beverly as well a lot more empathetic in this version of the film, which I really appreciated but in the end there are a few reasons why this doesn't quite fully work for me the series tries to retain some narrative aspects of the original film story that rather than fully committing to the more pertinent zeitgeisty social points that i just mentioned that make this version feel so fresh and exciting and for me this in turn leads to a certain amount of thematic entanglement for me, it kind of does a disservice to the series' overall cohesion in terms of like narrative flow and structure. This poisonous codependency, it's, it's an important part of the original story, and it is interesting, but I'm not sure 
the series puts a spin on it which is that distinct from the original film at all, really. And I would have much rather the series delve even greater into these social themes rather than retread, admittedly, very well-acted water. And in its current state, it moves between these thematic halves with, I think, rigidity and this erratic kind of lack of direction. There are these... um dinner parties and pitches for finance that feel as though they're happening in episodic vacuums rather than a holistic miniseries. You know, some, the best miniseries, I think, feel like six to eight hour movies. This doesn't feel like that. It feels very kind of tenuously kind of pulled pulled together. It doesn't have the easiest flow and that can kind of make it a sort of difficult and just kind of strangely strenuous viewing experience at times. The fourth episode is also total filler, and I think it squanders an opportunity to delve into how the Mansell's relationship with their parents has shaped them into the people they are. A later introduction of a writer character building an expose on the twins, it also excuse me, smacks of a cheap ploy, I think, to extend the film's material towards full series lengths, which is six hour-long episodes. The other quite nagging issue I have is with it is how the, er- the character of Elliot is written. I really appreciate that there's this far more pronounced separation in personality and performance between the twins. However, Elliot's written as so brash and bullish and crash, crass to the point of, I think, irritating caricature, which I think at many points it greatly undermines the authenticity of that central relationship. It's a shame too because the performance of Beverly is quite beautifully judged in its distant and isolated quirk and gentle sadness and yet soft empathy. But the other performance just rings so sour and creates this this fictitious dissonance that makes it difficult early on to invest fully in the pair's dynamic. However, the final episode has these really has this really square focus on one of the twins and these gripping hard right turns into surrealism that do, in the end, I think, a stellar job of tying together the themes of abuse and codependency to the point where it may take it may make the prior friction between the twins go over better on a rewatch and recontextualize it to a certain degree, especially with like the psychological journey of Beverly in particular. And um, so I would be open to maybe a revisit, you know, shedding new light on the material, but you know, my initial thoughts on it post post viewing is that I'm, I'm not entirely quite on board with it would be your rating for dead ringers my dead my rating uh i think i'm gonna go straight down the middle on this one i think a c plus um yeah i think i'm just too torn on the various different aspects of it at this stage unless it does sound like quite heavy material to binge in. Oh, yes it was <laughs> i did feel i did feel suitably weathered after having <laughs> three six six oh. hours of this my god your effort is appreciated <laughs> And I hope you have time to mentally recover uh, for, for next week. Um, moving on from Dead Ringers, we've got an anime pick next. We haven't done an anime so far. I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on this one. This is Suzumi, uh, who is this? Uh, who was directed by the same director who did Weathering With You and Your Name. So a big name in the, the anim- animation world. Your thoughts? So, um, I was very excited for this, considering that the director Makoto Shinkai, his um his previous films, you know, 
I mean, he's made lots of shorts and features, but the Garden of Words and in particular Your Name, you know, signaled to me that he was one of the most exciting voices working today in modern Japanese anime. His films take this this kind of equally grand and fantastical scenarios, you know, bending the laws of time and space and physics and fuse them into very real existential human issues. And this this is genre blending was like rip roaringly compelling and incredibly emotive and sending both these films, Garden of Words and particularly Your Name, into the realms of like modern animated classics, you know, runaway success in Japan and like you know so much crossover success in critical acclaim in you know the states and the UK and everything. And I think you know I would go as far to say Your Name is one of my at least favorite animated films of the modern era if not ever you know not even just in japanese anime they're just it is just a total total masterpiece i think i would go as far to say in my opinion i would i would you know i can't say enough nice things about your name and with his subsequent film weathering with you while solid it did feel like a retread of that previous feature and on the topic of suzumi i or suzume i I sadly do think it, this slight downward trend is continuing in Shinkai's filmography. The story is it centers on a young girl named Suzumi who, in a sort of remote Japanese sort of island or sort of village, um, encounters a strange door that sort of spews forth this very sort of dark, sort of gargantuan, demonic force that triggers an earthquake. And she encounters this very kind of strange, sort of gothic, almost kind of Heathcliff-esque um, young man who is trying to shut this door and through sort of a strange sort of turn of magical events he becomes by this other sort of myst- mystical cat who appears to have a a connection to these fantastical events he turns, the, the, the cat turns the guy into a chair and that while seems random does actually relate to the lore the story and they suzumi and the the young man is after he's turned into a chair they go on sort of this city hopping road trip-esque adventure to travel to these various doors and close them no one else can see these doors as they appear and sort of save various different parts of japan from disaster at the hands of these sort of seismic earthquakes now the central conceit of having doors that act as portals through which a force clearly acting as a metaphor for generational grief is baked into the fabric of japan is very intriguing but despite the script provides a very solid kind of narratively justified stage for this city hopping adventure with these episodic interactions with a revolving cast of characters as they go between the cities and try and you know find the doors that pop up over japan and there is there is cute warm character drama interspersed with some sparkling and very kinetically staged action sequences. There's one particularly impressive sequence involving, you know, the graceful movement between the tracks of a of a decommissioned roller coaster where kind of a door has popped up. But for me, the the central problem with Suzumi is that a lot of the side characters and sort of humanistic detours, they feel like incidental asides that don't contribute much to the overall plot development. I found myself frequently hoping to revert attention back to these more mystical metaphors and moving towards their human significance. But instead, the pacing repeatedly stagnates in favour of these dialogues that 
that feel like distractions, sadly. Um, there's a particularly egregious road trip driving section towards the back end of the film where I really start to feel like Suzumi was elongating the runtime to an unnecessary degree. And it's not particularly long either. It, I don't even think it, it cracks an hour and 45 minutes, but even then it did feel like this was, you know, a much smaller, the magical stuff was a much smaller, you know, maybe shorter 30, 40, 30 to 45 minute feature, more in the vein of the Garden of Words, whereas they were using all this humanistic kind of humor, humorous stuff, which is kind of nicely written, but, you know, doesn't really gel with the magical elements of the story, which is something Shinkai is usually, you know, a total master at. And as for the fantasy, when Suzumi did eventually focus back in on it, it was steeped in this obscure lore, and the rules of which are quite obtusely laid out. I think it keeps the audience in the dark to, for so long that by the time we get round to the to the final moments, it kind of like throws a lot of reveals at you at the last minute, and it sort of like gives you sort of narrative whiplash, really. And that made for a somewhat unsatisfying and not particularly seamless conclusion to the story. And it made it hard to make sense of an invest in in some of the magical elements and the fact that the rules are laid out quite obtusely it, it provides another layer of sort of screenplay obstacle to getting to the human meaning underneath the otherworldly events so although i have seen online some comments saying that the um, a western audience wouldn't necessarily understand how suzumi is very kind of closely linked to some trauma that has re- has re- resulted from some recent earthquakes in Japan. So with that in mind, maybe if I researched more into that and looked back at the film with sort of more of a holistic view, given that I know the sort of the, the eventual outcome of the story, I would kind of maybe see some more thematic depth in it. But as it stands, it, it didn't really leave me satisfied. And I did have some sort of screenplay-centric issues with it. Not to mention that the, the main character is kind of grating. Like she's... She, she is a, a little bit annoying, which is a shame to say. It doesn't give me any place to say that, but I think Suzumi's probably my least favourite of his three main features so far. Um, I would give this a C plus. I was a bit, I was sadly disappointed by this one. Did you see the uh, the dubbed version, or did you see the subtitled version? Because I find that that greatly impacts how much I enjoy an anime, or how much it grates on me. Subtitled, I saw. Okay, at least you watched it the right way. <laughs> yes. I, I find a lot of like the American voices really get to me. I don't know why. The only the only dub that I can watch and enjoy, probably because it's the one that I like it's the way that I experienced the show first was uh, Full Metal Alchemist. The the English dub for for Full Metal Alchemist I'd say is pretty decent, but a lot of them just don't cut it. They're they're so so bad. <laughs> There's some there's some pretty good Ghibli dubs, but I think in amongst that we also have Grave of the Fireflies, which is probably the worst dub in any anime. I've not, I've not seen it, the dubbed version of Grave of the Fireflies. I mean, it, it made me cry like a baby. Grave of the Fireflies. I like I was too young to watch that. I don't think. <laughs> I think I saw the animation and I was like, oh, it's an animated film. And then, oh my god. <laughs> the bad. young the young boy's voice acting is appalling in it. It's just like uh, oh dear. Why are we delivering these I mean, I... really, really heart-wrenching lines with, you know, more woods than a piece of IKEA furniture? Um, God, I mean, there's um, 
I've got a bit of a soft spot for the Howl's Moving Castle English dub again because it's how I experienced it first. That's good. I will say Christian Bale Billy, as Billy Howl. Crystal. Yeah, Billy Crystal. I mean, Christian Bale as Howl is not my favorite. <laughs> yeah, I think I, uh, when I do eventually rewatch Howl's Moving Castle, I think that. I'm maybe going to come up against a bit of friction there. I'm going to go, ooh. I'd, I'd watch Japanese. Watch, watch, watch Japanese version. It's good. Um, hey, so now we're moving on to How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which I believe is a documentary. No, it's actually, um, it's based on a nonfiction novel, but it is actually a environmentally charged thriller. Uh, um, and also very... Very interestingly, I've heard this term banded around about it, and it's fascinating. It's one of the only films I can think of, aside from maybe Four Lions, that you could credibly describe label as a terrorist procedural, which I think is a oh God, <laughs> which is because it sounds very dark, but I think is a great way of describing it. So, how to blow up a pipeline? It, I mean, the premise is very direct and straightforward. Really, it's essentially, a number of different. Uh, environmental activists from several different areas of the United States um, sort of all coalesce uh, and coordinate this operation in the Texas wilderness in order to blow up, (laughs) as you could probably guess, two pipelines to disrupt oil flow and sort of wreak havoc with this faceless um, corporation due to the 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 ongoing climate crisis and their own various sort of demons and motivations relating to the corporation and how it's affected their lives and it's sort of it's treading this very fine line between you know is this terrorism or to what to what degree is it terrorism or even if it is class terrorism and sabotage you know is it fair game due to the incredibly high stakes that are involved in you know the the state of the climate crisis currently and one of the great things about how to blow up a pipeline aside from that amazing title is to see a director pull and display such a wide array of really great and complementary stylistic touchstones and influences whilst helping them to coalesce into his own distinctive voice and cinematic statement and i watched i read an interview with the director um daniel goldhaber and his uh he listed a lot of his his 15 or so key influences for the film and they're fantastic. The man has elite taste. And um, you can see so many of the influences on screen. You know, the, the urgent social commentary in, like, guerrilla-inspired, um, infused, you know, warfare and danger of the Battle of Algiers. This melancholy and ominous sense of impending doom from Gus Van Zandt's Columbine shooting-focused drama Elephant. Uh, the barren and rugged atmosphere of Catherine Bigelow's The Hurt Locker. The film opens with this really propulsive, electric and driving montage that connects the various different members as part of the collective unit and their ironclad and tightly knit coordination that kind of very satisfyingly and gratifyingly pulls upon the the shadowy, murky rebel causes and heist film intensity of Jean-Pierre Melville's Army of Shadows and Le Cercle Rouge. And that same heist movie inflected panic and peril that you would get from something like the Cercle Rouge travels over to like these nail-biting bomb-making and planting sequences which lengthen shots in the edit to squeeze the tension, you know, dry until we're sort of, <laughs> sort of at the, you know, white-knuckled at the very edge of our seat, but then quickly punch in with several close inserts to raise our pulse again. You know, they're, they're, as, they're as intense as any sort of bomb defusal scene from the Hurt Locker or Four Lions. 
and the very physical nature of these plants and sequences it makes the outcome of the outcome of them feel very physically earned by the characters making them even more satisfying but because it you know it signals us into the heightened risk for human error in these moments which you know make it that much more sort of <laughs> relieving when um when things go right or very um shocking and intense when things don't necessarily go right uh has below the pipeline it also plays very it very smartly invokes the conventions of the, the posse film or the crewing up process that comes as standard in a one last job size style of crime or heist thriller or even the terrorism focused black comedy of something like four lions oceans 11 and reservoir dogs were listed as key influences and um, you can certainly see that on screen, but the film takes this kind of slightly audacious approach to its narrative structure in how it cuts in and out of its various terrorism-focused schemes with character-centric flashbacks. And these detail how the crew found each other and assembled alongside each character's individual motivations for wanting to be part of this operation, and how they each embody a key component of this team, you know, bomb maker, navigator, vandal, trespasser, and um, coordinator, and also like spear spearhead sort of like leader of the team and putting this well-worn cinematic context into a very real and, and potently sort of aggressive extremist scenario was incredibly entertaining and also sort of adds moral complexity to the proceedings and, and makes it prescient of issues that are going on currently in the world with the, the battle around climate change the film is grappling with some very complex issues here like to what extent are these characters terrorists and their actions terrorism and if it's justifiable the film, I think, smartly lays out these ideas in the characters' dialogue as they grapple with the implications of what they're doing, which makes their interplay compelling. But it's not so, you know, polemical or, you know, overall or heavy-handed in its political messaging that it sounds like the screenwriter's speechifying on the topic at hand through the characters, which is almost, which is, is often a complaint I have with these types of films. But House Blurb a Pipeline kind of wisely sidesteps that. You know, we are interested in the conflicted views of these characters, but the film as a whole, it takes this kind of non-judgmental, neutral approach in its direction and sort of framing of the events, which renders it difficult to pull any easy answers out of the issues here. And I think that thematic contrast between, you know, the struggle the characters are doing and the film's overall framing of events is, is very intelligent and very sophisticated and I appreciate it very much, even if the character development or unpacking of their past isn't the most extensive. The, the bustling handheld camera work and like jabbing synth score as well. Direct, grand and like action-inflected take on what the score of the social network would have been like if it had been written for a procedural thriller or a heist film. And I think it elevates the tension and forward momentum of the story significantly. It, um... Yeah, I thought this was terrific, and I thought it had some interesting things to say socially and was just a really tense, nail-biting and gripping thriller as well that you know, has the 70s and 80s sort of crime drama aesthetic that, and style that really sort of elevates the material. I give this an A-, minus. I would definitely recommend this. And A-plus for good name. Sir. Yes, A-plus for the title too. It's a great title. Um, so our final film this week is called One Fine Morning, and I don't know anything about this. I can't even remember you talking about it last week. Did you talk about it last week? Was this on the um, thing? I 
I did, I did, I did mention this was coming out, although it hasn't been super on my radar. I think if it didn't have Leah Sadu in it, I might not have even really <laughs> known about it. Known about it at all. Leah, so do you like it? Uh, <laughs> I'll leave. I'll oh, go. Goodbye. You, you, you uh, never. I'll see you out. <laughs> the door is over there. <laughs> no, you, you never. Um, you never fail to make me laugh with your fabulous puns. I love them. Welcome. Um, okay. So, <laughs> I'm going to leave you alone now to actually review the film. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is a movie distributed uh, drama. Uh, French drama. It's it's currently out in out in cinemas, and um, I think it will also. I think it came out on the fourteenth in in cinemas, and I think it's now going to be on movie, um, either from the twenty eighth or maybe uh or maybe in the coming months it will come onto movie. It centers around a uh, not quite middle aged, probably around her you know early thirties, a woman named Sandra who is. Essentially, like, kind of, she feels as though her, she's kind of going weary and dejected with romance. She feels as though her love life may be dwindling and that's kind of, there's nothing really left for her there. And she's also going through a very sort of tumultuous period in her, in her family with her, you know, having to put her father in a, in a home due to his sort of growing dementia and inability to sort of live on his own and sort of cope with, you know, taking care of himself now. And some of the family friction in uh, sort of proving very, very difficult and very straining, and she also begins a relationship with a friend of, but very close friend of hers who is in fact married, and it's kind of like this, this push pull between, you know, feeling she is deserving of love and wanting to start again, but also sort of, in starting that with the person she feels is right for her, but also that sort of coming under very sort of difficult circumstances, and can they make that work? So kind of well-worn dramatic territory for a family drama. And one fine morning, it continues Mia ha- director Mia Hansen Love's preoccupation with characters and families navigating tumultuous existences, life-changing events and struggles. And it's, it's one of those films where the full significance and power of it, it kind of gradually creeps up on you and, and suddenly blossoms to reveal the complete emotional and thematic picture right at the very end. Which is a bit of a gamble, but I think can can really work, and I think it certainly works here. How delicately intelligent the writing is, it becomes quite apparent early on, simply with the choice of profession for for the character of Sandra. She's a freelance translator, so, and Leah Sadu's um, subtle tightness and repression in the slight stiffness stiffness of her movements and vocal delivery and vocal cadence, it conveys sort of the character's predisposition to suppress her emotions and, and move to her natural response, human and professional, which is to speak for other people. You know, her stock in trade is to take on the feelings of other people and relay their words rather than her own. And elsewhere, her distress and, and kind of slender moments of joy, they, they bloom forth in small gestures and, and they never feel anything less than pitched at just the right level of overtness and this point on Sidhu's performance is also reflects with the film's, I think, general approach to its familial struggles, which is to say there isn't a single trace of artifice, mawkishness, or sap anywhere to be found here. It's one of the most honest depictions of a family struggle I can remember seeing in quite a while, actually. It completely sidesteps any form of um, 
of melodrama, Mia Hansen's presentation of the friction between these characters is completely sincere. It's particularly impressive as well when you consider that material like this has been used to mine, you know, melodrama in the past. Um, very well, in fact, and, you know, in, in foreign cinema, perhaps most notably by Spain's Pedro Almodovar. When you kind of look at this and say a Pedro Almodovar film, which admittedly is from a different country and completely different style, but when you look at how much he mines, you know, very sort of big, heavy theatrical emotions from sort of similar narrative territory, and then you look at how, you know, beautifully understated One Fine Morning is, it, it's really quite um, impressive on Mia Hansen Love's part. King of Aldemovar, just for a, to quickly sidetrack for a second, have you seen the trailer for his new western starring Pedro Pascal? Because I am here for it. It looks so I've, camp. <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen it crop up on on social media with Pedro Pascal. And I think it's Ethan Hawke as well. Um, Ethan Hawke. And I'm I'm so excited. I need to watch the full trailer, but you know I'm always excited for a new Almodovar film, and to have these two in that sort of script is just sounds like a match made in heaven i'm hope i'm hoping it works and the fact that it's going to be a western as well because it's, like, it's like i think if I, it's his answer to broback mountain which makes me very excited because i'm i'm, I'm an on. aldemova fan i think i love volvo volvo is one of my favorites and there's some there's he's done some great films yeah talk to her all about my mother bad education is very underrated as well julietta been on Lloyd the verge was... of a nervous breakdown <laughs> Oh yes, the his sort of big sort of mainstream breakthrough, but and he's you know he's got such a reverence for film history and deconstructs the genre so well that I'm I would be fascinated to see what he brings to a western, but um, but yes, back to back to one fine morning sidetrack. No, it's, it's a very 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 good very apt sidetrack, but um, one fine morning it finds beauty in small triumphs for its characters, you know, in despair, filled patches, you know. It finds beauty in softly focused, glowing cinematography, in, in hopeful resolutions that feel so incredibly natural and in the moment and earned too. There's a the film it it's a far cry from films that feel as though they give their characters wins as palette cleansers at the end of the story after pummeling them emotionally for large sections of the film. Um the, the the winds in One Fine Morning, they feel like such natural progressions of the of what the characters have been through up until that point, which I really appreciated. Ultimately, One Fine Morning is a quite beautiful exploration of turmoil, loss and grief as, I think, necessity for positive growth and rebirth. You get this sense of cycles in life. But the film is kind of free-flowing in its structure. You know, it doesn't call massive attention to that, which, again, I appreciated. Um, there's... The also the film also says that despite pain of the present uh, moment, you know that that should be saved for how it brings the past and the future together and allows us to move into the future. It could be argued that the film's restraint means it quite it can't quite reach into like firework inducing like dramatic territory, but I don't hold that against it as it's it achieves its goal with real honesty and beauty and such kind of uh, such such real and and generous sort of honesty with its characters. And it, it does feel like you're just looking in on the window into a real family's life. And um, I really like this. I give this a B plus and maybe on some more, you know, maybe with more time, it would even grow on me even more. It's, um, it's a very fine piece of work. I would, if it's, if it's done in cinemas and also on movie soon, I, I would recommend people seek this out. 
Fantastic. So a surprise addition to, you know, the, that tier of, of film. I didn't think that it would rank that highly, considering that I've not heard much about it, but it's it's sometimes it's nice when a film surprises you in that way. Um, that's our final review this week. What have we got coming up next week? Apart from, obviously, we've got Walter Mitty as our... Um, as our audience suggestion carrying on on the music and scores discussion from this week. What else have we got coming up? So um, I'm very excited for the anniversary 4K restoration of Martin Scorsese's masterpiece Raging Bull, um, which a couple of friends of mine haven't seen ever, so we're going to make sure I drag them along to see that. I haven't seen it since I think about 2013, 2014, so I'm super gassed to uh see it again and just see i'm sure so many um more filmmaking easter eggs in it and gems of the of the art form we have the polite society a sort of almost kind of high thriller romantic comedy you know sort of indie hindi focused um or bend it like beckham tone wise almost it's wild sort of comedy It it feels so sort of freewheeling in terms of genre i'm just fascinated to see how it finally turns out and it looks wildly entertaining as well um and then we're also going to talk about beef the new uh, limited series on netflix that has proved quite um successful with the critical acclaim in the u.s and um has features a uh, glenn from the walking dead in it so i'm kind of quite excited to, to see how that is and i, I also want to see uh, ali wong series isn't it I believe so. Yes, and there's also an, a, a new, hmm. and there's also a new um, uh, island-based uh, police procedural miniseries uh, from the BBC called uh, Blue Lights, I think it is, and I'm looking forward very much to that as well, considering it's it's being compared to sort of like a very gritty sort of Irish style um, line of duty, but more sort of boots on the ground, you know, physical police work sort of thing. Um, so yes, excited for next week's lineup. Some streaming next week. I'm excited. I'm going to be able to like keep up with you this time. <laughs> My legs won't be sore trying to get to the cinema. Um, so thank you as always for all of your wonderful reviews, Billy, and thank you for listening. So please like us on Instagram or on TikTok now. Uh, please keep on sending in your suggestions when you see a post. We love, 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 love hearing from everybody and seeing what you guys have to say Um, and also if you are listening to the podcast on apple please leave us a review and share with your friends you know we're really trying to grow our audience um we really enjoy doing this and the more people that we can get to tune in the better so yeah thank you for listening and we will see you next week bye bye